This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is Leadership in Action. This is Mike Yassim. I'm in the studio here at uh, the Wharton School. We're on Channel 132, Sirius XM, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And I have the privilege now of introducing a person who's actually in the studio with me now, Michael Brown. Michael, good to have you here. Great to be here, Mike. Uh, Michael Brown is the co-founder and CEO of City Year. He's done many other things uh, in his uh, career, but we're going to focus on that. And I'll say a few more things about Michael as we get going on these other stops along the way. He, for example, worked on Capitol Hill for a while, no less than for Leon Panetta, later Secretary of Defense, later um, Chief of Staff at the White House, and he had a few other very uh, important positions as well. But, Michael, uh, we're going to really zero in here on... Uh, City Year. Uh, many of our listeners will know about it, but not all. So just give us a quick rundown. I know you work with AmeriCorps. You're all over the U.S., 29 or 30 cities. So wh- right. what, what's the deal? So City Year is a national service organization mm. that calls on young people ages 18 to 25 to say, give mm. a year of service in communities across the country full time. And what we ask them to do is to serve in high need schools from before the first bell until the last student leads the after-school program Hmm. to help students stay in school and on track. And we're in, as you said, 29 cities. We've got 3,000 City Year AmeriCorps members in service every single year. We've got about 30,000 alums out there, uh, including many that are at this campus. Great. Terrific. Michael, let's back up. You uh, finished a law degree. You clerked and looked uh, by probably your certainly your resume like you were heading to working in the law in some direct way. But uh, you veered off um, after a stint in in, uh, service uh, on Capitol Hill and beyond into creating uh, this organization. What what was the spark? Spark for me was when I was 20 years old, I took a year off from college. I was at Harvard <laughs> after sophomore year, and I said, I want to work on Capitol Hill, and I just I love the feeling of it. There was a sense of purpose and being yeah. alive, and I got an opportunity to work with an extraordinary member of Congress named Leon Panetta. <laughs> and at the time, Leon represented 200 miles of beautiful coastland, San Luis Obispo, Carmel-by-the-Sea, the the 17-mile drive. I always teased him. No one wanted to leave there to go to Washington to work with them. (laughs) So it was real public service. So it was like me from Boston that, you know, was representing their interests. Leon's an extraordinary leader, and he introduced me to a bill that he he had presented, a bill that would have created a commission to study the idea of voluntary national service, Hmm. calling on Americans when they're young to give a year of service, and all the things that could happen from it. It could be a multi-billion dollar service resource for the country. It could even help complete the civil rights movement by uniting people of all backgrounds. And together with the GI Bill for the military, it could provide a reciprocity that if you serve your country and your community, you could get access to college, graduate school, perhaps a business or a home mortgage. And the idea is that it would transform our country by having people of all backgrounds serve together and build civic trust. So here I was, 20 years old, (laughs) exposed to this idea for the first time. And I don't know how many folks like yourself or others that have ever had the experience where the first time you heard an idea, you knew it would change your life forever. That's, it was okay. thunderstruck, thunderstruck by this idea. I love it. I think this is what America yeah, needs. I, I love and I was 20 years old and I guess I felt like, well, this is maybe what I needed. Like, let's stay on it for a minute more. Public service, almost by definition, is a calling. It's service. It's public uh, compensation. Modest. So as you were looking at some of the options and alternatives, uh, why did public service, uh, not only on Capitol Hill but well beyond, why did that appeal to you personally? I think there's a number of factors. Uh, I grew up uh, in the 60s. Uh, There was a number of things that were happening in the streets then. There was a youth movement. There was the Vietnam uh, War movement. There was the Civil Rights Movement. At the same time, there was the moonshot, and America was seeking (laughs) to do really big things. And um, my family was also, my father always talked about issues of justice, and we would talk about it at the dining room table. So when I got exposed to this idea about national service, it just spoke to me as like, this is what it means to be an American, and this is probably the next stage of what America most needs, of everybody coming together for service. So for that, once that all came together, and I also felt like there are many times that people go into the streets and they get things done politically, 
but they, it's at a point where things are almost broken. What if America had a system that systematized mm. idealism? People from all backgrounds, black and white, rich and poor, conservative, liberal, everybody comes together. They mm. share an experience together. And from that, they can help build a nation together and solve problems with civility, with creativity, and a sense that they have a sense of efficacy because they've already gotten something done. It's great. You know, Michael, in business schools, we often uh, just work the terminology as follows. Uh, if we're a company, a startup, a, a nonprofit initiated, uh, the kind you've been involved in, we got to have the vision. We need a strategy to go with it and to build it. But then we have to execute around it. Right. A lot of heavy lifting. Let me start with your relationship with uh, Leon Panetta. And thinking back on your time with him, what did you learn from him? I assume he was a bit of a coach, a mentor, a person from whom you drew a lot. What did you learn from him as you watched him in action, both in Congress and then later in, in a senior administrative roles, that uh, has served you in the years since? I spent a year with Leon, and since that time, he's been a lifelong mentor. But I'll never forget the lessons from that year. He was a person on, in Congress that was always seeking to say, how do we get people together? He was the head mm. of the budget committee, and people were always fighting about the budget. And he'd say, how can we get the Democrats and Republicans together? Mm. One of my favorite uh, memories of, of, uh, of Leon, though, is we were putting together the hearing for the National Service Bill that I was so passionate about. Somebody wrote a letter to say, I'm against this bill. Um, I don't think this is right. We shouldn't spend money on this national service thing. And it came into him, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, what do we do? And he said, he said, invite him to testify. This is still a democracy. <laughs> and it was that kind of spirit that Leon still has today. He's it. an incredible public servant. You've seen all the things. You already started to list yeah. the things that he's done. I think he's the premier public servant in some ways of this entire generation, always putting service above any yeah. other personal needs. Michael, it was infectious the way you described it, and it probably was personal from time to time. Just to make that a uh, turn it into a question about your own exchange and dialogue with him, did you sit down with him and ask for career guidance, or even thinking as you're beginning to think about um, what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, City Corps? Uh, what do you think, uh, City Year, all AmeriCorps, City Year, all this? Uh, was that explicitly in your conversation with him? Well, it was in his office where I got turned on to this idea, where I worked on the legislation, where I worked on the hearing, and then went back to college because I had those two years to do. Yeah. And then I came back with my college roommate, Alan Casey, who we ended up starting Sitter with, and we got a meeting with Leon. This is now mm. two years later, um, so we're all probably of you know, 22 now, and saying, we really want to go work on this. And he sat us down in his office. He was incredibly encouraging. He said, this is exactly what needs to happen. You know, here I am on Capitol Hill. We're trying to, you know, get this going politically. If you could go demonstrate something, that's the way to actually move the country forward. And that will actually help the work that he wanted to do on it politically on the Hill. And he was tremendously encouraging. And he said, I bet if you try to get this thing started, I bet people will come out of the woodwork to help. And he was right about that. <laughs> Michael, I one time sat down at a table at one of these uh, conferences with people drawn from many walks of life. The topic assigned to our particular table with eight entrepreneurs at the table, I was the moderator, was what's the common thread that helps us understand who becomes an entrepreneur? What does it take that they all share in common? And after a long discussion, uh, a couple of people said, well, first of all, they're all a little bit nuts. And I think what, and then what that meant, of course, at the time was they, they've, got this, uh, in, they've got this vision, even if it looks completely impossible to achieve. Was that a thought at the time as well, or did you have this uh, kind of inner confidence it was going to happen? I think um, Alan, myself, another person that came together, a friend of ours, mm -hmm. Jennifer Eplett Riley and Neil Silverston, who started City Air back in 1988, we all felt like a little bit like we were running away to join the circus. <laughs> that it was like, what is this? But what was driving us was this tremendous sense that America is this extraordinary country, but it was just coming apart with all these divisiveness issues going on and this sense that if we could come together through national service. So we had this mantra, national service or bust. Yeah. That was what it is. It was like national <laughs> service or bust. It. And we were just, we were coming out of college and, and, and eventually grad school and we're like <laughs> national service or bust. Just a feeling like this pales in comparison to people who've gone to war to improve the country, yeah. to the founders of this country that put their lives and their their, and their sacred honor um, behind this country. Just coming out of school, being able to do this was a privilege for us to be able to say, this is what 
we think the country needs and what we want to work on. Talk about your co-founder. Mm-hmm. Just to just describe him and bring him to life so for us. So Alan Casey was us and I were mm-hmm. assigned to be roommates freshman year at Harvard mm-hmm. with the class of 1983. So September 8th, 1979 was the first day freshmen move into the dorms. And I get there and I'm assigned to be roommates with Alan Casey. And I could tell immediately that anyone that had already known him in, in his you know high school, this is a guy that just exudes enthusiasm. <laughs> he just feels you can change the world. Mm. So we basically bonded on a sense of idealism, a sense of change. We spent that freshman year, and then we were roommates all the way through law school. <laughs> and um, in fact, we were um, roommates until the day um, I got married. <laughs> and he said, you take the two-bedroom apartment. So Alan has this extraordinary spirit. And is always been organizing. So the two of us sort of bonded on the ability to have spirit and let's put some structure behind this once we want to get it going. Michael, to make an odd comment here, uh, all power to the head of housing at Harvard. Exactly. <laughs> we want to find that whoever does the, the freshman putting you know the teams together for uh, that, that, you know, at Gray's Hall we, at Harvard changed everything we for us. We didn't think of that as random, but it was maybe it was, uh, I don't know, blessed or foreordained. Certainly was for us. Michael, I'm going to take a, a quick minute here just to remind everybody that this is, of course, Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. And we're in conversation with Michael Brown, CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit organization City Year. Michael, take us forward chronologically then. So you, you've got the idea for City Year. You're, you kind of rev up your thinking just like at Uber. There were a couple of co-founders. They kind of worked off each other, got excited as they talked with each other. Um, and then the day came when you actually had to make it happen. So what what transpired on that day and the days beyond? So we did is we, we, we sat down um, at this uh, new machine called a Macintosh computer. I've heard of this that. This brand new thing. Now, we were probably the first generation where social change, uh, the amount of money that you had to spend on it, was beginning to come down to zero because now people mm. can use their phones and everything. With But we used to have to do offset printing. It used to be expensive. The Macintosh came out. We sat down and we did a business plan for something called City Year. Hmm. And I looked at it recently, 30 years later, it was no business plan. It was sort of some social political theory, a bunch of resumes, and this idea that we're going to get young people doing service. But it basically... Mm put it on paper, and we began to peddle it around to whoever would meet with us. And we were asking people, we wanted to do a summer pilot program, and then stop for a year, and then launch the full year program ongoing a year later. Because we knew we couldn't raise the money for the full year ongoing program, so we wanted to pilot it and leverage a 10-week program. And so we asked people to sponsor this 10-week program, and nobody said no. And nobody said yes. They would all say, who's already sponsoring you? We'd go to the banks. We'd go to the companies. We went to the equivalent of what Verizon was then. And um, we said, well, if you sponsor us, I bet they will too. So we started to do something that I don't recommend to social entrepreneurs, but we did it anyways. We did a little form, and we started to recruit young people to say, do you want to spend a summer, an idealistic summer, with people from all backgrounds, your age, that maybe you would never otherwise meet and have an adventure in service and idealism? And they began to apply. We didn't really have the money for it yet. But then what we did is we photographed, um, we photocopied those applications with a little Polaroid pictures, if folks remember those. And we brought those into the funders. And we said, look, for about $60 a week, these folks want to give their summer to public service. And we can see if this whole thing has legs. And it was the idealism of young people that really jumped off the page that got this thing going. And I always, I will never forget that. It's always about the young people themselves that moves this movement, and it really is a movement forward. Michael, along the way, just to think about a few bumps in the road, now you, you've already described one, you went to see your initial possible funders, and they said, well, tell us more, but they didn't write a check on the spot. We had a person on the show a couple of years ago <clears throat> who described a very tough year that he was going through as one in which he was sleeping like a baby. We said, really? It was a very tough year. And he said, yeah, I was waking up every two hours and crying. crying. You, right. you know the phrase. So uh, did you have a few nights when you woke up every two hours and cried? Well, it's been 30 years. And, you know, um, all social change is a little bit like a <laughs> sine curve. goes up and it goes down. But if you stick to it, what tends to happen <clears throat> is the general direction of that curve is up. 
So you feel like you're going up and down, you're bouncing off walls, but yeah. you're actually moving forward. So absolutely that first year when there was no funding whatsoever, is this thing going to get off the ground? And then saying to young people, come on board, and they basically got this thing going. Um, we had uh, other years where... Um, the funding wasn't really there towards the end of the year, and you put out the letters, and you're kind of sweating out payroll, and then somebody would come forward. Somebody would step forward and say, I believe in this. We've had people come out of the woodworks. It's almost like uh, you know fairy godmothers and fairy godfathers over the years that just at the right moment— yeah. Well, we were actually building the scaffolding to build something that could be sustainable like it is today. I mean, it's testament to the idea. The idea is resonant. People understand it. People can uh, say, look, that's something I would have done it at a certain age myself. Well, you know, Mike, I think that's one of the most important things about what we were working on. When we were starting it, Bill Buckley, William Buckley, conservative columnist, wrote a book called Gratitude, a meditation on what, owe, what one owes one's country. And he talked in a whole chapter on national service from a conservative perspective. Ted Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, who was my senator and Alan's senator, and became sort of the patron saint of city or an AmeriCorps, he believed in this. This is an idea that cuts across the American spectrum, like few ideas do. So our thought was, if everybody likes it, why don't we have it? And the reason is, it's such a big idea. There's 25 million Americans between the ages of 17 and 25 at any given time in the country. If we're gonna call them on to service, we better show that it can work. So the idea of actually demonstrating the idea and bringing people to visit, our biggest thought was just start a visitor's program yeah. and say, come and see it in action. Well, let's uh, dwell on that a, a couple more minutes. Uh, to get something going out of nothing, it takes an argument, you had to tell the story, and then nothing works like a um, a trial, uh, some illustration. Right. Here, here's what it looks like. Uh, this is what it is. Let's um, let's build it out. So, uh, going back to the story or the account or the the argument. Uh, suppose I'm a funder. Um, I kind of know in advance what you're in my office for, but uh, let, let me hear the pitch, if you wouldn't mind. Why, why should I write a very big check out to a city here? So the pitch is that. Uh, at the heart of America is American democracy, and citizenship is what unites us all. And we need a way to activate American citizens mm. because it's an unlimited renewable resource. But for the most part, mm. a lot of citizens don't know how to get involved. They don't know how to engage. So all of that service and all mm. of that energy is under a bushel. And if we could create an experience where they could feel a sense of efficacy, a sense of community, a sense of belonging for a short period of time, mm -hmm. that could f affect their entire lives in terms of the kind of public citizens they would be. So the ROI is not only the year that they're in service, helping all these other nonprofits do all the things that they need to do and moving you know, things forward in schools and after-school programs and community centers, but for the rest of their lives they are going to be active citizens, serve on boards, do community service, and help solve public problems. Two quick thoughts, Michael, to be a little bit cute about it. It's an antidote to bowling alone. It is. It is. And number two, there's a long tradition, you know it, in political science of thinking or kind of um, arguing that the roots of any democratic system is the willingness of citizens to be in association with each other before they get to the ballot box. And this is making up for all that bowling alone and providing people exactly. with that kind of nexus. So that's, exactly. uh, that's, a, that's a very big argument. Exactly. It goes back to the Tocqueville. <laughs> yep. Uh, it goes back. Uh, just to say for most of our li uh, listeners were not, will not know about the French observer of American life, but just tell us a little bit about his observations. So Alexis de Tocqueville comes over mm. in uh, the early 1800s and tries to look at this new nation and what is yeah. it that's so unique about it? And he said they're all joiners by which he meant they would join associations. They would see a problem and they would solve it together. They didn't immediately look to any particular government because government was so nascent uh, in the new American democracy. This idea that just citizens could just start things is so powerful, we just forget that like that's our superpower yeah. in this country. And let me ask you about your own tangible experience in rooms with prospective supporters or donors. Yeah. Uh, did you find... As you've just expressed now, the the very the the big picture, the the the, the ultimate uh, purpose of American democracy and continuing our great experiment that goes back to 1776 and and beyond. Did you find that 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 argument at that level did reach people 
by and large, or did you have to supplement that, for example, with tangible illustrations, or maybe all of the above? Over the to answer you. is both. Yeah. So I think all of us as Americans get inspired by this idea of what America could be. So that people would <clears> take <throat> that. But what we also decided when we started Cityer is that we would start it entirely private with private dollars. We were inspired by Peter Ubaroth and what he did with the LA Olympics in 84. Yeah. And most Americans may not remember now that before 84, the Olympic movement had been largely public and it nearly bankrupted the city of Montreal. <clears throat> Peter Ubaroth comes around in 84 and says, you know what? We can get companies to sponsor this. And all of a sudden, we may think today that maybe these movements are almost too corporate or overly sponsored, but without yeah. the private sector getting behind this extraordinary Olympic movement, we wouldn't have the Olympics today. So we said, why don't we ask companies to sponsor teams? We'll put their brand right on the uniforms of Cityair. So we had Bain and Company, Bain Capital, we had Bank of America sponsoring us. Now Comcast has 24 teams all over the country. So our proposition to them is not only is this good for the country, but we can actually ex help you express your civic values all over the country yep. by associating with this work. And it's a double bang for the buck because you're investing in the young people who are in service, leadership development, which you are an expert on, and the direct <laughs> service that they're doing helping people in communities across the country. Michael, moment, uh, just hang on for a moment. I want to remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Channel 132, Sirius XM, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School. Uh, I'm Mike Yusim, and I'm in dialogue with Michael Brown, chief executive and co-founder of the nonprofit organization, now not only nationwide, but I think even global these days, Michael, City Year. So uh, let's dwell briefly before we take a longer break coming up in a few minutes about um, expansion. So you've got probably, my guess is, one city going, proof of concept. Uh, Uber got going in San Francisco, up and running. And then you've got to, uh, I guess, uh, maybe even here, you have to build out quickly to sustain the momentum and ensure you're going to be there before somebody else grabs the idea. So what was your experience after you got one city going to get out to 29 in the U.S. and now beyond? When we first started City Year, I didn't really think that we would be starting a second City Year. Originally, it was a demonstration. Mm -hmm. And one day, perhaps the government would pick this up like the Peace Corps. So in fact, in the 1992 mm -hmm. election, we put out a call, we put out a letter out to every single candidate running. And we said, come see National Service in Action. It was 50, 70 young people in Boston. I like to say that it was some combination of innocence and arrogance on us <laughs> to call that one program National Service. We got a call from Bill Clinton's campaign, governor of Arkansas, running for president, saying that he was interested in this National Service mm. idea. He had thought about it and put it, promoted it generally when um, he was head of the Democratic Leadership Council. He wanted to come and see it. We're like... They said, can he come? We said, of course. It's why we're here. Democrats, Republicans, everybody should come. We put him in a room with five city or core members, the mayor of Boston at the time, um, Ray Flynn, and one of our lead corporate sponsors from then Bain and Company named Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney and Bill Clinton sat there with five city or core members and had about a two-hour conversation. And afterwards, as it was ending, Bill Clinton said I, that he was tremendously inspired by hearing the young people and how they had come together from different backgrounds, different racial backgrounds from the city and the suburb. And in fact, one of the young persons took his city or sweatshirt off, handed it to, to Bill Clinton and said, Governor, please don't forget us. And this is right before the primary in, in, in New Hampshire. So it was the early stage of the campaign. And Bill Clinton said, I won't forget you, Stephen. Fast forward. Mm. 11 months. Bill Clinton is now president-elect of the United States, and it's the day after Thanksgiving. We haven't seen Bill Clinton in 11 months. There's a new network that's called CNN, and they are watching the president-elect jog outside after his policy meetings as he prepares for his cabinet. And he's jogging in Stephen Spallis' city-year sweatshirt. And I was like, oh my oh. goodness. I reached for the phone to call Alan Casey, my partner, yeah. and the phone is ringing. I just pick it up and say, are you, I don't even say, who is this? I say, are you watching this? This changes everything. <laughs> what Bill Clinton stopped, and they, they asked him, President-elect Clinton, what are going to be your policy objectives as president? He said, the national debt, because it's too high, health care, because not everybody has it, the economy, because there's a recession, and fourth, national service wearing the city or sweatshirt. <laughs> and we were thinking, no president talks about national service that like that was, we were, except us national service geeks care about that. That did change everything. So he created AmeriCorps, 
which is a funding program that can yep. fund many programs. Now, to answer your question, people were coming to us and saying, would you start other city or programs? And we always said, we don't know how to do that. We're, we're barely keeping this thing alive week to week and month to month. But it's a movement. Talk to our people. Start your own program. So we basically couldn't say yes to anybody. But then a young woman named Mary Louise Ramsdale came to us, Caucasian woman, which is an important point to this story, and said she's at Harvard Law School now, but she's from Columbia, South Carolina. And she said, over the state house, they fly the Confederate flag over our state house. It hadn't yet even been moved mm. to the front. And she said, I want, when I saw you guys with this core, black and white young people all coming together, I have to have that in Columbia, South Carolina on the steps of the state house as an antidote to what that flag represents to our community. So I want to start a program. And she so inspired us that we said, let's go work with you and let's get it done. And I said to my parents, we're going to start a second city or program. Remember, we started in Boston. Guess which state it's in, and I'll give you 40 <laughs> guesses. And on the 42nd guess, they guessed South yeah. Carolina. And my point is, we went there because a young person brought us there. It's Wonderful. always about the power of young people. Michael, to go back to my earlier quip, uh, you had a couple pretty good nights of sleep. Uh, one with uh, Bill Clinton with a certain sweatshirt, right. and then this um, kind of just over the transom offer. And it's probably been your agenda ever since then. Michael, hold the thought. We're going to come back and talk more about how you then built out. We have a lot of listeners now who are trying to develop their own community group or mm -hmm. maybe um, uh, a center of some kind, maybe even a company. So stick around, everybody. We're going to take a short break. Uh, after the break, we're going to continue our dialogue with Michael Brown, who has created um, an amazing organization we're talking about right now, City Year. This is, of course, Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back in a minute. Leadership in Action, that is us. Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Yusim, director of the Center for Leadership and Change, faculty director of the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. We've been talking with Michael Brown, who is here with us in the studio, who is the co-founder and CEO of City Year. And we're really focusing on, on Michael's experience in building this rather amazing nonprofit organization began in one city, Michael, and then spread out. I just want to add, by the way, that you are on campus today, compliments of the Fells Institute of Government. It's part of the University of Pennsylvania. It has a public policy and practice series, and you're going to be speaking in that. So thank you for coming to campus. My for pleasure. That purpose. Michael, before the break, we were uh, kind of musing on how you then built from an idea into a reality. And I'm really interested in how you uh, got beyond your first city, what went into it. I know you've got a little bit of a redirection along the way. I'd like to ask about that, too. But let's, before we get to the redirection, just get us going. You demonstrate a proof of concept in Boston mm -hmm. and then South Carolina, mm -hmm. and then take us on from there. What, what helped momentum build after that? So in talking about building something, I would actually just go back to the beginning. There was a quote that someone gave to us from a Scottish poet um, named Murray who said that once you commit, then providence moves too. All kinds of things will happen. And it was really once Alan and I decided, we're just going to do this with a few other people, that people then came forward. So to, to people, if you're out there and listening and you're thinking of starting something, it's actually the commitment that actually helps, believe it or not, get all the mm. other things to happen. And then from there, we met a, an entrepreneur early on who said, you know, it takes five to seven people to start anything. Okay. Get five to seven people. <laughs> and from that, we're like, you're right. It's not. Just, how do we get more people involved in this? And it doesn't even matter what they do, but there's that energy. And then they start filling in the holes and they get other people about it. And only then did we begin to put some structure on it. And you heard we, you know, we got the program started and then we, we were able to get it a little bit bigger. And then we were able to get the government behind it. And once there was AmeriCorps funding behind it, there was essentially a marketplace. And there's a mm -hmm. role for government in this. Uh, and I think sometimes people can say you can be a social entrepreneur and only be in the private sector. But there's a role for government in the public good. And what ended up happening is AmeriCorps has allowed Cityer to expand so that we're now in, in 29 cities uh. across the country. And so those were absolutely key, key elements to it. Michael, I'm going to make an observation on <clears throat> several themes you just uh, brought out there. 
Uh, one is to run anything, to build anything, you kind of have to do everything. And by that I mean in this case, you had to have the idea, you had to have a feel for what it meant to serve in a city. You also had to know your way around Capitol Hill. So question for would-be entrepreneurs listening to this discussion, how did you learn this whole range of skills that you really have to put together if you're the founder, the creator, the developer, and the entrepreneur. How did you get it? I, th- I think a lot of this hmm. is um, you don't know what you don't know. And once you decide to put yourself on this sort of passion movement <laughs> that you just, I said, national yep. service or bust, it's like, well, how do we figure that out? How do we get to Capitol Hill? We began to talk to people there about legislation. And ultimately, it was when uh, Bill Clinton got elected. Here in, in Pennsylvania, Harris Wofford, we met him, Senator Harris Wofford. When we met him, he was the Secretary of Labor and Industry here in this state. And he called us up when we were just starting City Air, some little article he had, and he said, can I come and see you? It's extraordinary. This man who had influenced the Kennedys, an entire generation yeah. of public service, <coughs> came to see us and got behind us. Hmm. And when he became a senator, he wrote the legislation for AmeriCorps, and we began to work with him, and then Bill Clinton got elected, and it was all a chance to actually expand it, along with Eli Siegel, who helped get Bill Clinton elected, who became the chair of our board, and we were able to unite Democrats and Republicans together. And we really just learned how to just do what you had to do, go in and out of offices, connect all the dots, and make it so that it could be everybody's victory. You know, to draw a parallel, to bring out the point, to re- reinforce the point, uh, a couple of colleagues and, my, and, my, and myself have spent time trying to understand how the great Chinese-based computer company, Lenovo, mm-hmm. which is right up there. It's either number one or number two in personal computers along with HP around the world and Dell, how it got going. And the creator there, the entrepreneur who knew nothing about running business because nobody knew a thing as Deng Xiaoping opened up China back in the early 1980s, he said, I just learned by doing it. Exactly. And, uh, and that's sort of your story. I mean, and I'm sometimes you learn by crisis. Yeah. So we had a big crisis back in 2003. AmeriCorps was funding us and other organizations. And then you know what happened? All the funding huh. ran out. Hmm. It was after 9-11. They had given out a bunch of grants. There was no more money. They said, we're basically going to take a year off. But you know what? All of our organizations, and not just us, but Teach for America, hmm. Youth Build, citizen schools and other organizations that were using AmeriCorps funding, we were all in the same place. So what we did is we banded together and created a Save AmeriCorps campaign. We had no idea how to do this. We ended up getting 100 editorials across the country. We got almost 48 governors to sign a letter for emergency funding, including then-President Bush's brother, Jeb Bush. And we basically just banded together. We didn't know how to do any of this to create something that eventually became Voices for National hmm. Service, which is now run by my colleague, Ann Mora Conley. Hmm. And we work with all of the national service organizations to protect and promote AmeriCorps. If you would talk to me even like a day before that crisis in 2003 about how you organize a national coalition or could it even be done, we ended up getting all the AmeriCorps money back the following year and it's been growing ever since. Michael, to make my outside observation on that one, uh, when things are uh, going south, when you're going off a cliff, don't back off, double down. Exactly. We've had on this program the now former CEO at Cisco Systems, the maker of Internet switches and everything else that kind of drives uh, uh, our Internet in this country anyway. And he was called up after Cisco went through a huge downdraft. It was at the top of the Internet bubble, went from 80 percent growth to 40 percent contraction within six months. He was called up by then chief executive uh, or just stepping down chief executive of General Electric, the famous Jack Welsh. And Jack said, you know, uh, John, it doesn't feel great right now, but you're going to be a great company because there's nothing like a crisis to turn you into the kind of person who's going to be able to build that baby in the years ahead. So I'll hear a little bit of that in you, too. That crisis turned out to be, uh, you, don't want to lead, you don't want to go through it twice, but it was a bit providential. What do you think? Exactly. And the next crisis for us was the, um, the whole economy crash in 2008. Uh, yeah. And so what happened for us hmm. is at that time, a, a few months before, and you mentioned Cisco, uh, and John Chambers, in fact, who's been a mentor to me in helping to build us, 
they have been funding us for years, and we have been talking to them about actually getting some resources to focus our work in education. So we were doing, before this, a general service <coughs> core, but we found that most of our members were having the highest impact in schools. So we did a very big decision. We decided we would focus entirely everything we were doing in the highest need elementary, middle, and high schools to help keep students in school and on track and learn in a whole new way how we would actually be an education nonprofit. That was a high-stakes decision. And it was a huge mm. high-stakes decision. Some people mm. are in the organization because it's mainly youth development. It's doing many things. Other people would have to come to the organization as education leaders. We would have to show our education chops. We would have to be accountable now to school districts because we were asking funding, tax-based dollar funding, to say, we can help move the needle. Mm. And we had to build all of this out. And then the Great Recession hits. What are we going to do? We had to take a million dollars out of our budget just because of that, and yet we're trying to make this transition. So what we said was, let's protect. We're not going to fire anybody. We're going to hold on to our people. Let's find ways of cutting. We cut travel, and we cut our national mm. convention. We used to bring everyone together for amazing four days. It was about a million dollars to do it with everybody. But I said, draw a circle, a fortress, around the parts of the organization that are working on the new work. Mm. The folks, the small team led by a woman named Stephanie Wu had been with us from the beginning, and what she was doing with our nascent education practice, all of that funding has to stay in place. And that, ultimately, we ended up doubling in size during the Great Recession because it became much more valuable as a nonprofit to the schools which we were serving because we got stronger. Thinking about your walking into the office in that dark period and you're thinking about this, we would call it strategic redirection, whatever, uh, whatever you want, however you want to characterize that. It's a big decision. It's kind of a bet the enterprise decision. Exactly. And with the benefit of hindsight, it obviously was a great way to go. But with the moment of foresight, what gave you the confidence you were going to get through that? You know what it was? It was going back to that original idea of national service, that the country needs national service. But you know what? We have national service in America at large. It's the United States military. And we have the military, right. there's, there's two million Americans in active duty or in reserves. And they have, a, they have a mission. Their mission is to win America's wars and protect America's interests. And that's why we have a large military. The question is, why should we have a large domestic service equivalent? Is it just for the young people who serve? That's probably a good reason, but not enough. Like the military, it needs to show that it can move the needle on something. If we're going to scale this and ask all Americans when they're young to do either a year in the military or a year in domestic service. In fact, our vision is that one day the most commonly asked question of a young person is where will you do your service year? So because of that, we said, you know what's holding back national service now 12 years into our, 18 years into our program? We're not moving the needle on anything yet. We, we're too diffuse. So if we could pick something, an on-track student, someone who otherwise might not graduate, and we can show that through our prevention and intervention work, they can stay in school and on track, that not only helps that student and that school and our democracy, but it proves the value that young people can be taken as seriously in a domestic service setting as they are certainly taken seriously when we send them into harm's way overseas. That's great. Michael, hold the thought for just a second. I want to remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action. We're in discussion with Michael Brown, co-founder and CEO of CityEar, a nonprofit organization that works in 29 U.S. cities. And Michael, to get back into the dialogue with you, I know you've also opened up an operation in London and Johannesburg, South Africa. Why have you gone global? So it wasn't really part of the plan, although we did ask mm -hmm. um, a, um, we had a wonderful consulting firm from Bain & Company um, about uh, 12 years ago, and we asked them to take a look at our international idea. What mm -hmm. would it be like to go international? And they came back with tremendous thoughts on it. In terms of action, they said, consider going first to Toronto, because you're in Boston. Toronto's about an hour away, speaks the same language. You'll cross a border and learn how to do it. So if you want to go international, essentially go to Canada and try it. And we didn't happen mm -hmm. to know anyone over there that was wanted to do that. At the same time, we got a call from Eli Siegel, who was the chair of our board, who had worked for Bill Clinton, and he said, I just got off the phone with Bill Clinton, and he just got off the phone with Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela mm. had asked Bill Clinton to come give a speech in South Africa on building civil society. <laughs> and apparently Nelson Mandela had said to Bill Clinton, you have been building civil society in America for 200 years. We have been fighting a revolution here. 
and now we have a new and free South Africa. Will you come and give a speech about what civil society could be like and what it's like what it could be like in South Africa. So Bill Clinton said to Eli Siegel, our chair, let's bring the Cityer folks over and talk about Cityer and AmeriCorps. So off we went on a plane with Bill Clinton, mm. 18 hours uh, in flight, and it was like a seminar with him. It was extraordinary. And uh, the privilege of my life was that and meeting um, Nelson Mandela. And we thought we were there just to share ideas, but over time people said, will you start a program with us? So we ended up starting Cityer South Africa, so instead of going to Toronto, which is an hour away, we went to South Africa, which is an 18-hour flight. And if you don't call them by 10 in the morning, they're all asleep because it's a 12-hour difference there. But we did it as an act of labor of love. And if you could have told me when I was in college and the number one issue was fighting apartheid, that I'd be working with a, in a free South Africa with President Nelson Mandela. So you have to pinch me for this. So it was a privilege. And once we did that, then we had an opportunity with some people to come together from the private uh, sector in London. And we started there. And, you know, at some point we may, we may go further internationally. Most of our work right now is domestically. Here's an oddball c uh, comparison. Uh, the world record in the one-mile event now is three minutes and 43 seconds. But uh, physiologists have said... It's probably going to eventually go down to maybe 335, but there's just a limit to what the body can do. Uh, it's pro we're probably not going to get faster than a, a three-minute, 30-second, one-mile event. That said, you're in 29 cities, U.S., two abroad. What's the limit? Can you reach millions more? As you look, what's out there that right. you haven't uh, impacted? Right. How far so, can you go? So we built this new platform in the education space, and we call it Whole School mm -hmm whole child. So we, we work on the whole school, the climate of the school. We work on the whole child, their, their emotional um, intelligence, their ability to get along with others, their ability to self-regulate, and their academic supports. So in terms of your question, where did this go? We stepped back five years ago and we said, if our unit of impact is an on-track student, on the path to graduation, a study came out from Johns Hopkins University that found you can predict who's likely to drop out as early as the fifth grade by high absences, poor behaviors, or course mm. failure in math or English. Those are four early warning indicators. We adopted those indicators as our metrics. And we basically asked the young people in Cityer mm. to move those metrics forward. Five years ago, we stepped back and said, how does that scale? And what we've decided to try to do is so that every city that we're in reach it, make sure that at least 80% of the students in the schools we're in reach the 10th grade on time and on track where they're three times more likely to graduate and reach at least 50% of the off track, the likely dropouts in every city we're in. We also said, why don't we get to about 40 cities at the same time? So we have a long-term impact goal. At this point, it would be to triple in size from 3,000 core members to nearly 10,000. We currently have, we currently um, serve in 350 schools across the country. We want to serve in 1,000. And we currently serve about 250,000 students a day. And we want to serve three quarters of a million. At that point, we would be serving the, uh, the communities in America that are producing two-thirds of the urban dropouts. So it wouldn't be boutique. And we want to serve the same children for seven years in a row from grades three through nine. So there's no inoculation in the third grade, get them to read. You've got to get them through the sixth grade, which is the first year of middle school, first year of high school, so they adhere to school, and put them on a path to graduate. So we have a long-term impact plan that we've now been working on for five years. So it's a long answer to your question of where we're going, right. <laughs> which is we know exactly where we're going, and whether we get there in another five years or another ten years, we're trying to dramatically increase the urban graduation pipeline in America. Michael, picking up on that, uh, especially the aspirational side, you, you want to reach many more. You began your first year probably by reaching maybe a couple thousand at the most. The most. And the history of many enterprises a startup is that the uh, early creator just can't make the transition into running something more established. Steve Jobs is maybe the exception on that. Uh, but uh, many <clears throat> founders are pushed out after a certain point and, and more seasoned executives brought in to take things forward is what happened at Uber, of course, about a year and a half ago. So thinking about your own uh, evolution, um, to put this in the form of an affirmative question, how have you learned to lead now where you're much bigger, you're global, you've got many thousands of uh, students you're serving, you've probably got a large staff. Um, it's just a different skill set now. Um, 
first of all, what is it that's different now? And then secondly, how the heck did you get it? It is something I've certainly <coughs> thought about, and it gets talked about, the founder syndrome, and yeah. like, how long do you stay? And I've tried to analyze it a bit, and I think you have to be organizationally aware and self-aware. So organizationally aware, it, we've gone through the stages of startup, uh, institutionalization, national mm. outreach, and now I call sort of full potential strategy with this mm. work in schools. We've gone about four or five different stages. The question that a founder has to decide is, for every stage you're in, are you still passionate about it? Because some people want to be serial mm. entrepreneurs. That wasn't me. I, I wanted to stay and work on this. Are you still passionate about the organization for the stage <clears> you're <throat> in? And two, do you think you have the skill set or could you acquire them? Could you acquire people with you that have them? And the third thing that you need after organization aware and self-aware, there's mm. limits to being self-aware. Mm. Are you getting candid opinions about whether you can still do this? Do, are there people that will tap you on the shoulder and say, in order to keep doing this, you need this, or it's time? And so I've tried to reach out at various times. I have found I have stayed more passionate at each stage. I didn't know when we started this that I would enjoy building an organization as much as mm. the idea that motivated me about national service. So both are passion points for me. The main thing that's changed in me, if anyone knew me years ago between now, I used to have a gigantic whiteboard in my office. It was like the size, it might have been like 12 feet by like 8 feet. And I'd get up there and in a meeting at some point and start writing on the whiteboard and start designing something in the middle of a meeting. I no longer have a whiteboard in my office. Okay. I don't have to be the guy that goes and designs anything. We have amazing people in our organization. What I have to be is a good listener and ask really good questions. My favorite questions to ask are, if you could wave a magic wand and do it the way you really want to do it, what would you do? Because people come into my office and they often think they have these constraints. They know we don't have the budget for it. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time. So they maybe don't tell you what's really on their mind, what they really like to do. Nine times out of 10, there's a way to do what they really want to do if you can draw it out of them. So I think that's the skill set that I've tried to learn, which is like the genius is out there. And how do you just draw it out and not have people self-constrain on it? No, it's really interesting because as you described the early years, you didn't have to draw anything out of anybody because anybody was you. Right. But now there's limits to that. You're working through a lot of other people. Let me remind everybody, of course, that this is Channel 132 Sirius XM Radio Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, and we're in a final few minutes of a dialogue here with Michael Brown, the co-founder and CEO of City Year. As we wrap up, Michael, two more personal questions. Um, you have met with um, many of the leaders of, of our era, Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, Leon Panetta. Pick one of the people that you have met that has had more impact on your own thinking about City Year and how it should be run and who you're reaching and what the future contains. So who's your exemplar, your model, your guru? I've been blessed by mentors, by, um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, by <clears throat> Leon Panetta, by Justice Breyer, who I had the you know, privilege of working for, by my own parents who have just been extraordinary. Um, my mother used to always said, you have to give children roots and wings. And <clears throat> boy, did they give you know, their kids and me, that. Um, the mentor, and, and I mentioned Harris Wofford has been a tremendous mentor. The mentor I would like to, to share with you, his name is um, Hubie Jones. Hubie Jones was the dean of the school of, um, uh, at, at Boston University, uh, and he has been an extraordinary leader in Boston mm. and across the country. Um, dean of the School of Social Work. Yep. And he was mm. on a local TV show in Boston. I watched him growing up. He has this enormous sense of justice. <clears throat> in Boston, there isn't an organization that Hubie hasn't started, f expanded, or saved. <clears throat> it's incredible. And he's been doing it his whole life. And about 12 years ago, he joined Sidier as a social justice entrepreneur in residence. He's next to my office. And it's the joy of my life that I get to walk <laughs> out of my office into Hubie's office. And he's the guy that said... You know, I think there's going to be a big push for national service when the Clinton administration comes in. You already saw how he cared about it. You guys aren't ready. You better get ready. Start staffing up. Start doing, putting some plans together. He's always ahead. And so, you know, this big shout out to my dear friend, um, the beloved uh, Hubie Jones, uh, who is still the youngest man I know uh, in his uh, 80th decade. Yep. So, Michael, just to personalize that, I've, I've known Hubie, and uh, I completely concur with what you've just said. That's great. Uh, the power of Hubie, Hubie Jones is quite something. With a couple minutes to go, 
I'd like you to speak to our listeners now who are maybe 20 years behind you chronologically. They are maybe in college, coming out of college, in their 20s, and they're looking at service, and they would like to do something that has impact and could be lifelong. With the benefit of looking back on your own time uh, in law school, undergraduate life, and then on the Hill and beyond, what are the two or three lines of advice you would have for people who would like to be you? Well, I don't want them to be. I want them. I want them to be themselves. In fact, I was reading Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth, and actually watching it on television with Bill Moyers back in the '80s when we were starting Cityer. And Bill Mo- and um, Joseph Campbell, who studied all world mythology, may have been the wisest person of all time. And he said, "The privilege of one's life is to actually be who you really are." Great point. And and that it, he also said that if you follow your bliss, your bliss will follow you. But if you follow your bliss, you will probably have to slay your own dragon to maintain your bliss. Your dragon is whatever holds you back, whatever is the thing you think others expect of you. And frankly, after going through a lot of mm. high credential education, what was probably thought people thought for me and myself was some more brass rings in that and actually stepping off to go do this. So what I would say to anybody is if you have a passion, go for it. The worst that can happen is it won't get off the ground. It likely will because of your passion. And don't feel like you have to wait until you're secure. Sometimes those other things will create boxes around you that later on, it's harder to do. Another thing that I've learned over time that is if you want to make social change, a lot of us get into social change, myself and others, sometimes we're motivated by two very powerful emotions. One is anger and one is guilt. And it's very easy for us to experience these. We could be extremely hmm. anger, extremely angry at the social injustices around us. We can feel guilty if we've been given privileges that others haven't. The problem is those can be motivating to get you started, but they can't be the prism through which you're making your decisions or how you're interacting in the world. Because if you express anger, it will always push people away. You can't build anything through anger. And if you're doing everything through guilt, you tend to paternalize the people around you instead of empowering them in the same way that you would want to be empowered. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned about social change, and I try to step back and do a self-analysis. Am I, am I falling into anger or guilt here, as opposed to just saying those can be powerful m- engines, but they have to be pushed down for the way in which you actually want to be successful in social change. Michael, a great line of advice to end on. I really appreciate that. I want to offer up two thank yous. First of all, to Elizabeth Vale, who works with uh, you. Here, uh, here. here. She's here. extraordinary. Uh, and she's with the Fells Institute, and that's the group that is uh, through Elizabeth's Engineering has brought you here for your on-campus presentation later on today. And, of course, I want to thank you, Michael, for taking the time to talk this through with us. Obvious follow a concluding question here is for those who would like to learn more about you and uh, the city year in particular, how would they go about it? So they shouldn't learn any more about me, but, but they should definitely get involved in city year. If you, if anyone listening is 17 to 25 or knows somebody or cares about somebody of that age, please encourage them to go to www.cityyear.org. That's C-I-T-Y-Y-E-A-R.org. We are accepting applications now for our program that starts up again in the school year in the fall of, uh, of 2019 and 20. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 